Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today, I'm talking to Nora Osmond Seeger, the Director of Palliative Medicine at the St. Raphael campus of Yale New Haven Hospital and Clinical Instructor of Medicine at Yale Medical School. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Seeger writes about the evolving policy on hospital visitation at her institution during the COVID-19 pandemic, and how ever-changing and complex restrictions resulted in stress and trauma for one family. The U.S. has been in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic for more than two years now, and visitor restriction policies have been imposed to various degrees to reduce spread of the virus and protect patients and staff. Restrictions may tighten as case rates rise and loosen when they are falling and further exceptions might be made for patients who are imminently dying. But in reality, these evolving policies have been difficult to implement consistently and fairly. Nora, thank you for joining us today. We've heard so many heartbreaking stories in the past few years about families who had to say goodbye to loved ones in the hospital on the phone or over video calls. Um, And you mentioned that your institution had an exception at one point that allowed patients who were quote-unquote, imminently dying to have visitors. Um, But in practice, how well did implementing that policy go, and and were there unintended consequences? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, This is an issue that when I wrote this piece, I was wondering whether it would still be relevant by the time it was published, hoping that maybe the case rates would be different or that the policies would have been lifted. But unfortunately, it continues to be an active part of my daily practice. So I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, So the implementation of the policies um, has been really challenging, particularly for on-the-ground clinicians who are asked to kind of explain these policies and then enforce them, particularly for people like myself who are taking care of patients at the very end of life and who are often giving you know, very bad news to families. Um, The natural question is, of course, well, if I have limited time, then can't I spend that time with my loved one? That becomes a really important priority for almost everybody who I'm taking care of. And um, I want to be able to say, yes, come in, celebrate the life of this person at their bedside. But there are many um, ongoing uh, barriers to get people um, to the bedsides of their loved ones. And um, particularly... Um, the way that this has been implemented for lack of, um, I think, other clear, clear guidances has often been tied um, to sort of a change in care plan, um, transitioning away from um, intensive medical interventions and towards a more comfort-focused approach. Um, but not all patients and families want that or can implement that at the end of their lives. And so what our, our um, kind of de facto policy on the ground was, if you choose comfort-focused measures, then you have a more liberal visitor policy. Um, but that keeps um, families apart um, when that's not part of their their wishes. And so it's disproportionately um, certain patients are in our in our system who are kept away from their loved ones. And um, although um, those policies have evolved and our institution has recognized a sort of unfair implementation um, on the ground, I still see um, it being defaulted to. Um, still hearing kind of people say, well, they're not comfort measures only, so they can't have more than two visitors or whatever it is. And so I have to do a lot of education saying, no, this is um, this is not the case anymore. You know, if they're really at the end of their lives, you know, hours to days type of time frame, then they should have a more liberal visitor policy. 
um, in some ways, I think um, we're at a place in the pandemic where we could make the policies even more uh, um, liberal for all patients, not even just the very, very end of life patients. Um, because, you know, time is precious, even when it's weeks to months, right? <laughs> um, and we're in a different phase of the pandemic than we were. Um, so I think um, attention to this issue is as relevant as it has ever been. Yeah, I, I'm wondering what you would see as a more just policy, given given the changing nature of the pandemic and kind of looking toward the future if if something like this were to arise again. Yeah, I mean, I think prognosis is a helpful um marker um, because it's not, um, it's more objective, I should say. <laughs> it's difficult to prognosticate, but it's more objective than a treatment plan. So a treatment plan um, creates a system where people end up in a position where they're choosing a treatment plan because of the visitor policy rather than choosing a treatment plan um, for its other merits <laughs> or for the other things that it might bring to the patient or the family. And so um, it creates this sort of system where you say, well, if you choose comfort measures only, then we have this more liberal vis visitor policy. And so people tend to or have chosen that treatment plan because of the visitor policy and not always because of, you know, the, the other reasons why they might want that treatment plan. And so I think a better way to frame it is around prognosis because prognosis is independent of a treatment plan. So some patients um, choose very intensive interventions until the very end of their lives, um, but they might still be approaching the end of their lives. And usually we have some markers as physicians when we see those things coming. And if we can say, listen, I think this patient has a prognosis of days to weeks, weeks to months, whatever we think the right time frame is, um, and we can we can see that coming, then we can say, listen, this is really important to have, have more family at the bedside. And families can choose whether they want to take that risk um, about being in the hospital or being together. I think it's time to really let them choose. Um, we can protect ourselves. Like we have the, the personal protective equipment that we want that we once didn't have. And so if we don't know the patients or their family's vaccination status, or you know, if they can't produce a negative test, we can we can you know, protect our staff, we could protect the patient's family member, um, too, by, by putting them in, in protective equipment. Like our staff is used to taking care of patients with COVID-19. They're in and out of those rooms all day anyways. The risk from additional visitors is, is low, um, particularly when a patient's at end of life, they're often in a private room. My, my feeling is that um, we could bring more than just two visitors to that private room at a time for longer periods of time when we can see that their prognosis is short. You know, if they're on a ventilator, if they're off of a ventilator, if they're, you know, on other um, kind of life prolonging therapies, I don't think that should come to play about, um, you know, who gets a visitor and who doesn't get a visitor. And despite that being decoupled in our in our policy, it's written down, right? It's not see, it's not comfort measures only status, it's prognosis. Um, people are used to it kind of being this comfort measures only. And so it puts individuals in the way of um, kind of enforcing the policy rather than you know, that's the reason why I have a policy so that individuals aren't choosing who gets a, an exception and who, who doesn't. Um, because, you know, you might get a certain charge nurse who interprets things one way, or you might get a physician who interprets things another way. And it just introduces a lot of uh, potential for miscommunication. Um, you know, this family that I'm going to tell you about um, had, you know, their policy change day to day to day. And so that was very challenging to explain to them, like, why were we all allowed in here yesterday, but now we're not allowed in here today. Um, it just creates a lot of um, opportunity for conflict. Um, and it's something that our, our staff 
you know, myself included, are tired of navigating this conflict. Um, you know, it's already a, an emotionally charged time in someone's life. And so, you know, minimizing points of opposition between the care team and the patients and their families is really important. And, and you know, we all want to let the families in and we're being asked still to kind of say, yes, for you too, but not this other person. And, or yes, for your 18 year old child, but not your 12 year old child. So there's just a lot of nuances um, to, um, to deciding who gets to be at the bedside and who doesn't. And with that, I mean, I'd, I'd love to get into the story. Thank you again for joining us. And now here's Nora Seeger reading her essay, As Hospitals Restrict Visitors, What Constitutes a Good Death? It was a voicemail from a patient's son. Dr. Seeger, what's going on here? This is crazy. On the hospital floor, we called the patient Mrs. Tyler. Her son's name was Marlon, and my stomach churned as I listened to the rest of his message. Call me back as soon as you get this. I'm very upset, he said. They called us this morning and said mom's oxygen was only 50% and we should come in. So we rushed here, but then they wouldn't let us in. I just don't understand it. We were all here in the room with mom the other day. Oh no, not again, I thought. The visitor policy. Sitting in my empty office, hunched over my telephone speaker, I sighed. As the pandemic stretched on, I was profoundly tired of giving bad news to family members over the phone. This was not the first or the last distraught family I would counsel about our institution's visitor policy, but each new incident triggered a wave of exhaustion. I met Mrs. Tyler in April of 2021 when we first diagnosed her lung cancer. I am a palliative care doctor focused on providing support and symptom relief to patients with serious illness. The primary medical team had asked me to clarify Mrs. Tyler's wishes regarding ongoing treatments and to counsel her family through her diagnosis. During her weeks-long hospital stay, I had become close to Mrs. Tyler and Marlon. Although a stroke and her cancer had diminished Mrs. Tyler's body, she remained one of the finest storytellers I have ever met. At 88 years old, she had an impeccable delivery and timing. Although some stories featured marching bands and childhood games, one surprising tale veered into more provocative territory and had me laughing with her as I have never laughed with a patient before. When speaking of her coming death, Mrs. Tyler told me, I'm not afraid. It's Marlon I'm worried about. Marlon, a chaplain, was no stranger to the dying process, having ministered to many in his church at the end of their lives. But Mrs. Tyler knew her death would be different. He's very attached, she said, smiling. I could see why. When I asked Mrs. Tyler what she thought my role should be for Marlon and her family, she said without hesitation, you act as our guide. Marlon will call you when he's ready. He's not shy. I took this direction seriously. Indeed, I still sometimes replay her words in my mind when I need an answer to the question, what is the purpose for my work? Mrs. Tyler was right. Marlon did call me. He asked me about her prognosis because he and his family lived out of state and he needed to plan. Hey, I won't hold you to it, but what's your best guess, he asked. I told him we were probably talking about a range of time, weeks to months. He called again when Mrs. Tyler was readmitted a few weeks later with dropping oxygen levels. This time I told him, I wish we had more time, but you need to come now. 
Although Mrs. Tyler's lung cancer had progressed and she required a high amount of oxygen provided in the form of high-flow nasal cannula to maintain normal oxygen saturation, she remained lucid, laughing a wheezy laugh whenever she saw me again, recalling my reaction to her stories. She asked for candy and ate whole packages of the gummy worms I brought to her bedside. When Mrs. Tyler's condition worsened, I worried that her family wouldn't make it in time to see her. And then I worried that they wouldn't be allowed into the hospital. When are you coming? Where is everyone coming from? I asked. Marlon drove through the night from across the country. A second son risked a flight to LaGuardia. Mrs. Tyler's daughter was there too. They all gathered at Mrs. Tyler's home, a 10-minute drive from our hospital. Now for the tricky part, getting the family into the hospital to see their mother. Our hospital, similar to most during the COVID-19 pandemic, had imposed an evolving set of restrictions to patient visitation designed to reduce viral transmission, protect patients and staff, and conserve personal protective equipment. Experts in our health system convened to create these policies during the first COVID-19 wave in an environment riddled with uncertainty. We knew little about transmission and the risk for severe illness. Gowns, face shields, and N95 masks were in short supply. Over time, we have learned more about the disease, vaccinated our patients and staff, and thankfully moved beyond the early PPE shortages and hospital leadership has adapted the restrictions accordingly. They tighten the restrictions with rising case rates and loosen them when case rates are falling. But the restrictions have not been fully lifted, and even at their most lenient, they have allowed for only two family members at the bedside. The Delta variant in the summer of 2021, and then the Omicron variant in the winter of 2022, both threw us back into extremely limited visitation environments. Throughout the pandemic, our policy has had an exception for imminent end of life. At the time I was caring for Mrs. Tyler, our policy read, patients that are at imminent end of life may have two visitors. Swapping may occur with the patient's immediate family only. This includes parents, spouse, siblings, and children. All swapping must occur outside of the hospital. This sounds straightforward, and the authors surely had patients like Mrs. Tyler in mind when they authored these policies. Yet the practice and enforcement of the policy has been anything but simple. First, how does one define imminent end of life? Even as trained providers, we are notoriously imprecise in our prognostication. Hours? Days? Weeks? What counts as imminent? Perhaps in answer to the challenge of prognostication, those tasked with enforcing these policies, in our hospital, it was most often the floor charge nurses, often apply this exception only to patients who have stopped life support or life-prolonging treatment, choosing comfort-focused care instead. I have also observed the restriction lifted temporarily for a family meeting where this choice is expected to be made. This de facto standard is not explicitly stated in the policy but it has nevertheless meant that exceptions are allowed for patients and families willing to forgo potentially life-prolonging therapies, even as patients who are dying with those interventions still in place don't get the same flexibility. This unwritten rule has led to the unjust application of a well-intended policy. The policies also require individual nurses and doctors to determine who does and who doesn't get an exception, 
introducing the potential for discrimination and differential treatment. What constitutes a good death is often culturally and spiritually specific. Different patients and families define and understand suffering differently, and they have widely differing preferences about whether, when, and how to continue life-prolonging measures. Our job is to respect and honor those preferences. Yet, by applying the visitor exception primarily to patients whose preferences are for comfort measures only, hospitals are setting up visitation as a sort of prize to be won only by foregoing life-sustaining treatment. This approach reflects our biases about what death should look like. I have seen patients and family choose comfort-focused care when they might not have otherwise done so, purely because they could no longer tolerate the isolation of the hospital. When I am put in the position of explaining or enforcing this policy, it can feel as if I'm engaging in a form of coercion. Colleagues at other institutions, including Richard Leader and Samantha Gelfin, have written about similar moral distress navigating their hospital's visitor policy. Research has shown that non-white patients and families like Mrs. Tyler and her family are more likely to desire high-intensity care at the end of life. Qualitative data shows that mistrust, often born out of systemic racism, is exacerbated by physical distance and remote communication. Observed application of existing policy means that families desiring high-intensity care, regardless of their race, are disproportionately harmed by restrictive visitation and disproportionately kept away from their loved ones at the end of life. This is another under-recognized example of how COVID-19 has revealed inequities suffered by individuals and families. For Marlon and Mrs. Tyler, the exception of a family meeting was made with the expected transition to comfort measures only. Despite the grim occasion, there was joy at the bedside, with the family's laughter, stories, and love surrounding Mrs. Tyler. Her breathing relaxed, and she closed her eyes, letting the sound of familiar voices wash over her. In most settings, hospice care is not provided concomitantly with life-prolonging therapy, Mrs. Tyler's high-flow nasal cannula in this case. In addition, high-flow oxygen can only be applied in the medical intensive care unit in our hospital. When our hospice representative came to the bedside and started talking with Marlon about taking Mrs. Tyler off the high-flow nasal cannula, the laughter in the room stopped. Marlon and the medical team, myself included, struggled to see how taking his mother off of the high-flow oxygen would make her more comfortable, especially with her humor, wit, and appetite for gummy worms intact. So we tore the visitor exception away from them again. The staff in the medical ICU told the family only one visitor at the bedside per day. Given the circumstances, the family was disappointed, but initially patient and understanding. Marlon said, listen, doc, we get it. You're trying to keep everyone safe. They went home to Mrs. Tyler's house, waited and wondered what would happen next. Marlon and I gave the family updates. Mom ate a little today. Today, her breathing was a little worse. A few days passed. Then Marlon got the phone call from the intensive care doctor. Your mom's oxygen levels are dropping. They're 50%, even on high flow. We think time is going to be short. The family rallied, caravanning a group of cars to the hospital again. They brought their preacher to pray with Mrs. Tyler in her final moments. 
But when they arrived at the doorstep of the hospital, the charge nurse told them, nope, only one visitor at the bedside. That is when Marlon reached out to me. Dr. Seeger, what is going on here? This is crazy. All I could say to Marlon when I returned the phone call was, you're right, it is crazy. The inconsistency and application of the policy and forced separation had traumatic effect on Mrs. Tyler and her family. Who do they allow up? Which child? Who stays in the lobby? How do we ask a patient or family to make that choice? How do we ask staff to enforce this? Ultimately, we did our best. The nurse held up an iPad for the group in the hospital lobby. The patient's son, daughter, and pastor stood by the security guard, confused and praying that they'd be able to see Mrs. Tyler again. The repercussions of these moments will echo on in their memories, as in the memories of so many families who have lost loved ones during this time. I can still feel the ache in my own triceps from holding an iPad perpendicular over dozens of patients' beds over the course of the pandemic. My arms and back sweating in my yellow isolation gown, the trembling images transmitted to smartphones outside the walls of the hospital. In September 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services provided some guidance to nursing homes regarding visitation for residents at the end of life, but did not provide needed productive equipment or testing to facilitate these recommendations. Individual systems were largely left to create their own policies and structures. It is time to rethink the application of pandemic visitor restriction policies at the end of life so they are framed around prognosis and not around the patient's or family's treatment goals. It should not matter whether you are dying on or off a ventilator or on or off high-flow nasal cannula. If you are dying with an estimated prognosis of hours to days, the patient's family, both biological and chosen, as well as important clergy members, should be allowed at the bedside. Especially with increased vaccination rates and the reopening of other public spaces, this approach is long overdue. Since I care for Mrs. Tyler, risk mitigation strategies have been added in our hospital system to further protect staff and vulnerable patients. These have included having visitors show vaccination cards or a negative PCR test result at the point of entry. Other policies could include having rapid antigen testing available for those unable to show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test or having staff members and patients use extra precautions, including gowns and N95 masks. If these interventions prove cost prohibitive for individual health systems, supplementary funding for federal or state supplied rapid testing and PPE could help meet the goal of keeping patients and staff safe. As we learn to live with this virus or plan how to respond to the next variant or the next virus, I believe that institutional policymakers should act on a number of key lessons from the past two years. First, especially during periods of rapid viral community spread, visitor restriction exceptions should be linked to the patient's prognosis and not to their treatment plan. At a minimum, all patients with a prognosis of hours to days, as estimated by their treating physician, should be allowed a hospital visitor exception without any linking of this privilege to a comfort measures only care plan. Second, if a patient's prognosis is determined to be hours to days, Family members, friends, and clergy should be able to rotate into and out of the hospital freely. Third, during important care plan meetings with the treating team, all interested persons involved with decision-making should be allowed access simultaneously for the duration of the meeting. Fourth, if visitors are unvaccinated and cannot provide proof of a recent negative COVID-19 test, families visiting patients at the end of life 
and their treating teams should be provided with appropriate PPE to reduce the risk of in-hospital viral transmission. Finally, these policies should be revisited frequently with a team of experts and clinicians and adjusted based on evolving risk-benefit calculations, focused on rates of community spread and hospital capacity. Since I care for Mrs. Tyler, our health system has responded to broad provider, patient, and family concern and updated our most recent visitor policy to explicitly decouple the visitor exception from preferred treatment plans. The policy has also significantly broadened the definition of family to include anyone the patient considers family. Unfortunately, in practice, I continue to observe inconsistent application of these changes. In one survey of Dutch healthcare professionals, 75% of patients experienced visitor restriction in the last two days of life. Perhaps because of near-universal adoption of visitor restrictions in the United States, little is known about the real risk for COVID-19 transmission from patient visitation at the end of life. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommendations are based on known risk for asymptomatic spread. Although systematic data are lacking, inpatient hospice facilities, many of which never imposed absolute visitor restrictions, have not been significant sources for COVID-19 outbreaks. More study is needed to understand the risk to patients and staff from visitation in the era of vaccination and with implementation of mitigation strategies. Meanwhile, evidence of the harms of hospital isolation during the pandemic has begun to emerge, including increased provider moral distress, delayed family conferences leading to increased ICU length of stay, and poor quality of communication with families. I suspect that this evidence will continue to mount, not just in the patient, family, and provider experience at the end of life, but also in important medical outcomes. For example, family presence is therapeutic in the management and prevention of delirium to such an extent that it is included as a part of treatment bundles. One study from Japan by Kenji Kanduri and colleagues unsurprisingly suggests that visitation restriction was associated with increased incidence of delirium. We need more evidence to further characterize the harms of limiting visitation so that such harms can be rationally weighed against the benefits of putting these policies into place. As she told me upon our first meeting, Mrs. Tyler worried about her son, Marlon, knowing that after her death, he would have to live with the decisions he made. At the end, separation from the family was unacceptable to him. Marlon decided to move Mrs. Tyler to a local inpatient hospice facility where they do not have the same visitor restrictions. With symptom management of her shortness of breath, Mrs. Tyler's oxygenation stabilized, although she was no longer awake and alert. The ICU team nervously agreed to transfer her into an ambulance, risking the 15-minute drive to the inpatient hospice facility. The family and their preacher raced to meet her there, all the way worrying that she might die in the ambulance. Although she survived the transfer and her family was ultimately able to be with her at the end, the stress of that decision and the harrowing drive across town will stay with them forever. The stress of these moments will stay with me forever, too. By prioritizing protection over presence, these policies harm healthcare workers who recognize the importance of family at the bedside, but who are asked to repeatedly turn families away, increasing the already profound distress of providing care during this time. Marlon said to me, we only get one death. I just want to make sure I'm doing this right for my mom. Hospital system, state, and national guidance must create visitor policies that allow for, rather than impede, families, 
providers, and patients' ability to get it right, no matter how our patient defines a good death. That was Nora Seeger reading her essay, As Hospitals Restrict Visitors, What Constitutes a Good Death? Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you liked this episode, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.